This episode of Victorian Scribblers was recorded for our showcase at the 2019 NAVSA Data Caucus Conference in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. As with every year on Victorian Scribblers, this year we are um, recording in conjunction with the North American Victorian Studies Association Conference. So this year, instead of being at the main conference, which actually happened a few weeks ago, I want to say maybe, yeah, a few weeks ago, um, we are at the data-specific conference. Yeah, at the time of recording it was last week, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we are at an offshoot of NAVSA. So very exciting. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff going on. Hopefully we'll do a little bit of a live recording from the conference as well. But this recording today is specifically for our showcase. So it's sort of a supplement to what we'll be talking about in person at the conference. So in case you didn't know, <laughs> in case you weren't aware... So if you're just tuning in, um, which hopefully people will be, given the conference, uh, Victorian Scribblers is a podcast about the lives and work of the 19th century writers time forgot. It's a public humanities project that's equal parts recovery and accessibility oriented. And what I mean by that is that it's my goal to bring public attention to Victorian writers from fiction to nonfiction, canonical novel to ephemeral advertisement, in a way that is approachable, understandable, and useful to a wide-ranging audience. So that includes academic colleagues, students studying for exams, and enthusiasts out in the wild, as it were. Um, And I talk about this a little more, and not only in the intro episode to the podcast itself, episode zero, intro or introduction, I can't remember the exact title, but also in a, a, an interview that I did with the Mary Elizabeth Braddon Association, um, which you'll find linked in the show notes to this episode. So in this short episode, we'll be discussing the podcast's engagements and interventions with data, both 19th century data, which is the theme of the conference, but also 21st century data. But first, let's take a quick trip back in time to examine the beginnings of this podcast if you will, a kind of round the world in the life of Victorian scribblers instead of a specific Victorian scribbler. Except round our world, it's not round the world. Cue the music. In 2016, I became obsessed with history podcasts, uh, history chicks in particular, uh, while studying for comprehensive exams and was very disappointed to discover that there were no podcasts dedicated to Victorian literature or history. In the fall of that year, I began planning this podcast, or at least brainstorming to think about what sort of Victorian podcast I might be able to produce. 
on May 27th, 2017, I released the first episode. On July 27th of the same year, I shared the podcast on the major Victorianist mailing list. It read, Hello all, I wanted to share a podcast I'm creating that may be of interest as a supplement for undergraduate courses. It's called Victorian Scribblers, and in it I discuss the lives, writing processes, and works of lesser-known, by the general public standards, Victorian writers for a general audience. You can find it at the following link or on whatever podcast app you prefer. Best, Courtney Floyd. So I was one of the probably hundreds that saw that message, and I replied to Courtney on August 4th, and the email that I sent to her read... It's weird looking back at this... Hi Courtney, I don't know how open you are to collaboration or how easy that would be. My thesis concerns Francis Milton Trollope and Francis Eleanor Trollope. I'd be interested in discussing these two and other lesser-known Victorian writers. Best, Eleanor. So, a little bit of background about me. When I wrote this email to Courtney, I was just finishing up the first year of my PhD. And I'm kind of impressed with past me for being so confident in offering to act as an authority on those two Trollopes. Yeah, I just saw that email and I was like did I say that did I say that I would be able to just give information about these women it's great and I also find the opening sentence really funny in hindsight because I don't know many or possibly any people more enthusiastic about collaboration than Courtney so the fact that I said I don't know how open you are to collaboration I don't know what I was expecting for you to go no this is my thing leave me alone it's only mine like my precious yeah, which is some people's approaches to research projects are like that, but I think we're both on the same page of being very not like that and being like, whoever wants to come on board is welcome, and that's really cool that people and exciting that people want to be involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the question of how easy it would be to produce a podcast with one host on at the time the west coast of the US and one in the UK was probably prescient. Um, we, yeah. We have mentioned this in episodes where it's been particularly a problem, but there are a lot of learning curves and stumbling blocks to overcome. Um, my audio might not sound as good today because I'm having a problem with my mic, so I'm just recording on my laptop's inbuilt mic. So those negotiations are ongoing. It's all fun. Yes, it is. And then my experience as a podcast listener, I think, was quite different to Courtney's. So I was kind of just dipping my toe into that world when we first spoke. At the time I listened to maybe two or three podcasts and it was primarily comedy podcasts from comedians. So my main point of reference for a history podcast when we first spoke, or any podcast really, because I only listened to two or three at the time, was The Dollop. And they've had their own interesting experiences around data and sharing of sources, which is now great, but... I should probably throw out there that, like, the letter that I wrote was the second whole time, like, ever that I had written to the Victoria Listserv, I think. Maybe the third, but I was very nervous about it. (laughs) My advisor basically made me do it. (laughs) I'm so glad they did. So thank you, Heidi Kaufman. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Heidi. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, my advisor is the best. Yeah, it is really nerve-wracking to post those kind of international, worldwide mailing lists. Yeah, especially about something that a lot of people might not perceive as academic at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's still like a mixed bag of how people respond to public history projects, but I think for the most part, people are really um, enthusiastic about this sort of work. But yeah, so 
Did you have something else to add before we continue with our timeline? Um, no, I don't think so. I just thought it was... Because I can remember that first conversation we had and it did come up that um, kind of that our two points of reference for history podcast or podcast in general were um, history chicks and the dollop. And I think that is kind of a nice way of viewing us as we try and give that historical overview that history chicks does really well. Mm-hmm. And attempt mm-hmm. comedy. Yes. I think you're better at it than me. I mean, me. you're funny. I would say I attempt comedy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so on August 17th of 2017, we met via Skype to discuss our possible collaboration. Um, I was really nervous because I knew sort of the time commitment that this was going to be, and I was like, nobody in their right mind will voluntarily do this with me, <laughs> but I think it will be better if I have a co-host. <laughs> Good news. I'm um, not in my right mind. <laughs> Hello. Um, but yeah, so then on September 28th of the same year, Eleanor appeared as a guest host, which was a polite fiction, just because I was still like trying to find ways to give her an out if she started to panic and be like, this is too much. But she did not do that. So <laughs> I think officially our January episode was what maybe our, our Christmas episode was when we were like, hey guys, uh, Eleanor is now a full co-host. Yeah, because I can remember you asking me if I wanted to be a full-time co-host, and I was like, yeah, of course. This is really cool. I wanted that all along. <laughs> I never knew. Uh, I think basically all of my professional interactions when I'm collaborating are like me gently trying to give people a series of outs just in case, like... <laughs> I think just in case it's all gone horribly wrong and they regret their life choices <laughs> that's so funny because I think but I want them to stay but I'm like I'll understand if you have to go <laughs> that's so funny though because I think most of my experience of this are kind of um, being mired in imposter syndrome and being like they don't want you here they're trying to get rid of you so oh no it's a good job that we figured that out <laughs> definitely think, yeah that's one way in which yeah, our anxieties might have led us to this not being successful, but they didn't. Yay. So the rest, as they say, is history, to use a huge cliche. <laughs> Maybe this episode speaks to our usual working process of having quite a defined script with a few ad-libs, because today we're kind of just chatting, so it might be less structured than usual. Yes. So, some uh, some data about Victorian scribblers. Today, uh, the podcast is in its third season, with nearly 34 hours of content. Um, that's not including this recording. We have recorded 43 individual episodes, including this one, um, 16 of which are full length, at 45 minutes or longer, covering the lives of seven Victorian authors, and sort of doing brief summaries of the lives of, I believe, three more at this point. Um, in 2018, we recorded a mini-series titled Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians, in which we brought on experts in medieval literature, 19th century art history, and rare books to examine how Victorians adapted their own and other periods' works, as well as how we adapt Victorian works in the 21st century. Since we began tracking, so we've been on a couple of different hosts, which means... Um, our analytics are a bit scattered for that first year, I think. But since 
since the first year, our data has been consistently coming from the same source. So um, since that point, we've had over 8,659 listens, and we are currently in the process of implementing an audience survey to collect more nuanced data about how and why people are listening. That's so cool. That's so cool. Almost 10,000. Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably, probably at least 9,000, you know, I don't know how many listens we had in the first year, but wow. I, yeah. <laughs> I somehow, I'm very aware that this isn't the case, but I was, I approached a friend to appear on an upcoming episode because I kind of sent an email and said, I don't know if you know, I have a podcast. Yay. And she just responded saying, yeah, I really enjoy your podcast. It was a bit like, oh, I kind of forget that we put this out into the world and then people listen to it, which is lovely. Yeah, people actually listen to it. Yeah. Because I went through. It's amazing. I was a bit of a creep and I um, name searched for us on Twitter the other day, so... I did tweet about this, but if you saw me liking a tweet from two years ago, I just appreciate people talking about it because there were some really wholesome mentions of it. No, this is more me telling you, Courtney, than for episode information. Mm-hmm. And you probably already know, but there was like someone saying, I found a podcast about Victorian authors. I was like, yeah, it's us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you want to make our day, that's a very easy way to do it. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So while this analytics data isn't about the 19th century, I would argue that it offers a way to examine how podcasting as a medium encourages and shapes the way 21st century audiences engage with the Victorian period. In a similar way that Goodreads data, as Karen Bourier has shown, can tell us volumes about which Victorian works modern readers consume, both inside and outside of academic contexts. To my knowledge, we are one of two ongoing podcasts which specifically cover Victorian history and culture, the other being Chris Fernandez-Packham's Age of Victoria podcast. And both of our podcasts launched in the same month in the same year, May of 2017, because there was a real gap in sort of the podcast world relating to the Victorians. So there would be like standalone episodes of podcasts that don't really focus on the period that are really good and valuable, but there was not really a committed one. And since then, several smaller podcasts have kind of come and gone that focus on the Victorian period. But as far as I know, we're the only two sort of long-standing ones. And so our podcasts represent a potentially rich data set if we want to think about how the audio medium is um, sort of shaping the way that people learn about or engage with 19th century history and culture. So eventually, I think, and I haven't discussed this with Chris, so I'm just kind of throwing it out into the universe, I'd really like to do some more um, thorough data collection in collaboration with Age of Victoria podcasts to think about what's going on here. Yeah, because I think Chris has a similar mission to us of engaging with academic kind of sources and trying to make it accessible to, I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that, that does seem to be his kind of viewpoint of being academic-based but public-focused. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. To go into some more um, fuzzy data, the other day I was, while I was name-searching on Twitter, I was also searching on the various podcast like hosting sites and we do come if you search Victorian we come up at the very top which might be because that's um on Apple Podcasts and I had to be logged in to search that I don't know if anyone wants to reproduce that or find a partner or friend who has never listened to us and see if that still comes up that would be really helpful mm-hmm. 
And then when I typed in Victorian into Overcast, which is the podcast host that I use, we were number three. And Chris predictably was first. Yes. Deservedly. I don't know when Chris sleeps, though, because he puts up so out so much content. I know. Yes. I know. And it's also great. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on to our discussion of 19th century data, I just want to pose a question for us to sort of maybe focus on as we talk through this section, which is, what does it mean to engage with Victorian data in a primarily audio format? I mean, we're not doing sort of like text mining or um, any sort of coding or like network analysis or any of the sort of DH, I guess, I mean, poster child DH sorts of techniques with the data that we use, but we are working with data of a variety of kinds. So what does that look like? What does it mean? Um, what are the affordances of working with data in this way? Like, what does it let us do? I mean, there are obvious things that doesn't let us do, but what, what can we do in audio that we can't do any other way? And I think because that's such a huge question and we could talk about it all day, we could have a whole podcast about it forever, maybe, um, it would probably be helpful for us to focus on sort of the way we work with data related to time. Yeah, what the only other thing I was going to say is in reference to, I should have mentioned this in our Around the World in the History of this podcast section, but I also now work in research data management, so I'm thinking about the question of what are data all day, and then I get a bit mired up in the big picture thinking of, you know, what on earth do we mean when we say data? Right, it's such a messy term. Yeah. And there's so much implied in it that may or may not be true yeah um actually maybe i'll just jump to a quote that i thought i would use later but um, lisa gittleman points out that quote at first glance data are apparently before the fact they are the starting point for what we know who we are and how we communicate a shared sense which often leads to an unnoticed assumption that data are transparent that information is self-evident the fundamental stuff of truth itself. If we're not careful, in other words, our zeal for more and more data can become a faith in their neutrality and autonomy, their objectivity, end quote. That's such a nice quote. I mean, she really sums up. Yeah. So many things, especially the, um, yeah, that last sentence about the neutrality mm -hmm. and objectivity. Yeah. So it might help to discuss what sorts of data we work with on Victorian scrubblers just really quickly. So one of the major data sources that we engage with is um, actually secondary data, which is uh, biographies. So this is always sort of a mixture of primary source materials like letters and diaries um, that have been sort of embedded in this interpreted narrative about somebody's life. So through a second or third or fourth layer of eyes depending you know because biographies often quote other biographies and so we're getting this weird mishmash of what we might call primary uh, and secondary data yeah we also work with archival sources so i'm not close to any victorian archives any really in-person ones although i have yet to explore um the, the University of Virginia's holdings to their full extent, but a lot of the authors we work with, um, their papers are far, far away. So the primary sort of archival data that I work with is uh, newspaper 
data from the British newspaper archive and other databases that I am very privileged to still have access to, even though I'm not in a research position right now. So um, this is sort of, you know, often eyewitness stuff, um, or at least, you know, only once removed. Um, so interviews with authors or obituaries or things that are um, sort of embedded in the historical context we're trying to discuss, but also, you know, media, mass media is never objective either. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> no. But at the same time, I, um, yeah, at the same time, it's not objective, but it can be a really useful source, especially about this time period, because I've, mm -hmm. just to plug myself, I've got a paper that I'm currently revising, but it's essentially about the fact that when something is published, and I'm thinking specifically of Victorian um, periodical fiction, but when it's published in a periodical or newspaper, and especially when it's one that's, for, like, all the around that's edited by someone like Charles Dickens, who we still have interest in, then at least the issues that came out during his life have been really well preserved. Right. So that's a real bonus, whereas the letters, I mean, if someone doesn't know who Theodosia Garo is, they don't really have the impetus to um, preserve her letters, whereas with the actual newspaper data, it's you need the institutional affiliation, but you can find it. Unless it's one of the trollops, and then you can go to periodical trollops, just to plug myself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The other thing is that, so sometimes we have access to diaries and memoirs that have been either digitized and made available, or edited and published in a scholarly edition, which are amazing resources, but also, I don't know if you've ever kept a diary, listeners, but... Um, always sort of in the back of your mind is somebody might read this someday, right? So there's always sort of a performative aspect there. Yeah. You're never getting really to the sort of authentic self of the Victorian scribbler you're covering in this research. So the best you can do, no matter how much data you have, no matter how much access you have to primary source materials, is interpret fill in the gaps try to be as um like generous and thoughtful as you can in the process yeah so in that way i would say i really think of narrative as a data management tool um which might be really obvious to lots of other people but it's something that's sort of been a recent epiphany for me that i mean narrative obviously is not innate um and it's something that we use a lot but i didn't think of it really as a sort of tool as much as just a mode, I guess. And so sort of reframing it in my mind as a tool with which I am actually managing data really helps me think about how this podcast engages with data. So of course, we can't just kind of dump all of the facts on listeners in episodes. Our episodes would get entirely out of hand. We have to sort of pick um, which data mean the most, right? Resonate the most and do our interpretive work based on those pieces of data. Yeah. Sorry, I was just thinking with my, um, I don't know, with my RDM hat on. But yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it is something that you, even if it's it's nothing to do with the way you collect the data, it's more how you shape it and present it, it makes a lot of sense. Because especially with a public humanities project, it needs to be presented in a kind of consumable and easily digestible way. Hmm. Right. Yes. Good. I'm glad that's not just... <laughs> 
completely off in left field to use a sports metaphor. No, I think it's one of those things where, I mean, I was recently explaining my thesis to people and I was kind of like, it seems really obvious and I don't want you to say, you know, try to avoid people saying, why would you need to write a doctoral thesis about that? Because it's so obvious. It's, mm-hmm. A lot of academic arguments are obvious, but no one's put it down into writing or no one's really articulated it before. So I don't think it's an issue. I think almost it's a strength that that seems obvious. Hooray. I felt that same way about my dissertation, to be fair, but I think... That was a bit yeah, waffly, but... Yeah. So if we sort of rein this back in to think specifically about how we're using narrative and audio yeah. to manage data related to time, one of the major things that podcasts do uh, is offer, well, sort of the expectation for uh, segments or features of certain types. Um, and so one way that we've really managed time data is through our around the world feature, which you got a taste of in the beginning of this episode. Um, it's sort of a quick, sort of, I think of it as a time carousel. Like we hop on, yeah. we take a quick tour of some interesting events that provide context, uh, and then we hop back off again. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. So in that way, we're not kind of constantly having to gesture to um, the things outside of the story that we're trying to tell. Um, throughout the episode, we can just sort of put them in this segment and let readers kind of recall. Another thing um, that podcasts specifically afford to us when we're working with data is that we can work with um, different kinds of data. And what I mean by that more specifically is that we can kind of pair our narrative with sort of artifacts, like sound artifacts, for example, from from the 19th century. So one thing that I've really enjoyed in creating this podcast is finding um, archival um, sound holdings that have been uh, digitized and using time-appropriate sound, although um, in a few cases, um, you know, I sort of stretch the bounds of what's time-appropriate to fit the mood. So, for example, our, our closing music for this season is Come Josephine and My Flying Machine. And that is, um, I think the first recording of it is something like 1909 or so. It's slightly yeah. after the Victorian period, but it sort of captures the spirit of um, the, the, the aspect of the period um, and its attitude towards sort of science and invention that um, we wanted to really highlight in this season. Yeah, the content of that song comes from idea is engaging with ideas that are already around. Yes, yeah. So um, that sort of really evokes the period, sort of puts listeners in a frame of mind to think about our data in the way that sort of historical situation, historical like sort of rhetoric can help us sort of do that sort of same contextualizing work of putting the reader into um, the habit of thinking historically. We haven't really talked about the website side of this project yet, but Victorian Scribblers is a podcast with an increasingly um, robust website in that we're trying to share data on our website in ways that obviously audio can't allow. So we have 
um, visual timelines, for example. We have Eleanor's excellent portraits of the scribblers that we've covered. We have uh, bibliographies for episodes and links to other resources. And um, what else was I going to say? <laughs> yeah. And of course, the recordings themselves and transcripts. We've been kind of talking and going back and forth on how to present the timeline on the website in a way that's really accessible because there's a few different models of how other people have done it but then we really want it to be in a format where a screen reader can access it just as much as um you know a person with sight can easily see it somewhere where you don't have to be clicking around loads yeah so that's kind of an ongoing project i think yes right now what we've done is um, set up a github repository with a CSV file that we're um, including all of our time data into slowly. So some of this is retroactive work because although I did plan for the content and sort of the format of episodes at the beginning of uh, Victorian Scribblers, I didn't go into it thinking of it as really sort of a research project, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why. So we've had to do some sort of um, catch up in ways um, and in, in particularly in regard to data collection and sort of procedural things of just like the everyday work of the podcast. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, um, yeah, and I'm repeating something you said back to me, back, something you said to me back to you, but one of the reasons that we put that stuff on GitHub is so that listeners can if you were going back and listening to the episode on Wilkie Collins and you thought that's not on the GitHub timeline and it should be, that's not on the CSV file, you can add that in yourself. Yes. So I think that's another thing that we're really trying to do is be interactive and listeners can add those things themselves. Yes. So this is sort of a call for collaboration. Um, if you or um, a class you're leading or just a group of you and your friends want to go back and populate data uh, we will definitely give you a call out of thanks, <laughs> um, but also it would be helpful for everyone who is using this. Yes. So at some point we want to build sort of a really interactive, but also very accessible timeline. Like Eleanor said, there are some problems with that right now. Um, I also want to say that the form of the timeline, just as much as the form of the podcast, like the, the, uh, the features, the different segments, the music, sets up the way we're thinking about the data. And we don't want to sort of replicate ways of thinking about time thoughtlessly, like kind of a colonialist way of thinking about time or a really sort of um, oppressive way of thinking about time. So we're trying to pause and really dwell on how can we represent time in a way that's accessible yeah. that lets you really engage and interact with the data but also doesn't sort of unnecessarily frame the way that you're going to understand these events from a really kind of strict and inflexible position yeah that's completely yeah that's completely right and a really nice way of putting it yeah thanks and i think just to yeah, just to go back to the kind of accessibility side of it is obviously another thing that we've got is the metadata. So I am trying and do need to improve this a little bit. But when I upload the visuals, I try and include quite a detailed description of what it is so that, you know, someone who is using a screen reader can interact with that and understand what's going on. 
And then the other thing is the transcriptions that we provide. It's obviously a different kind of metadata, but one of the things that, that that's really useful for is having the timestamps on there. So just to do the classic thing of where you're writing for a call for papers and you wedge in um, your essay into the subject, I'll wedge that into the idea of time. Because <laughs> so I was talking to someone the other day about putting timestamps on our transcripts and they were saying... Well, no, it wasn't about timestamps. I was talking to someone the other day about producing the transcript so that it's accessible for people who might be hard of hearing. And they were kind of querying whether a person who was hard of hearing would be listening to a podcast anyway or whether that was something we would we should think about. And it's kind of like... Yes, they do. We don't want to restrict anyone yeah. who wants... Of course they do, yeah. right? Yeah. And also we don't want to restrict anyone's access to this if it's going to help people to be able to read along at the same time, mm -hmm. then that's a great thing and we want to do everything we can to make this, I mean, from a selfish point of view, we want to make this available to anyone who can listen because, yeah, yeah we do put a lot of work into this. But I would also say... Sorry. The, the... No, I was just going to say we put a lot of work into this and we do that so that people can engage with it and that's the outcome we want. Yeah, and also the transcripts are data uh, too. I mean, the episodes are as well. But the yeah. transcripts offer us a way to sort of analyze our own patterns. So we could do text analysis of our transcripts. We could think about like sentiment analysis. We could, um, I mean, it's allowing us to do sort of more interpretive work of our own, like a very meta level of like, okay, I'm transcribing that I laughed here, but what kind of laugh was it? Or like, what is that weird sound that I'm making? It's not a laugh. It's sort of like a weird choking, <laughs> strangling sound. Yeah. Uh, how do I interpret that on the page? And so it's um it invites new ways of engaging, but it also is also I think it's really a scholarly, productive scholarly activity as well. So it's not only opening up accessibility; it's also opening up possibilities for further study and different ways of approaching and thinking about what we're doing. Yeah, and my friend pointed out when we were having this conversation, another friend pointed out that she really likes our biographical episodes, but because she's not a literary scholar, she's less interested necessarily in the writing episodes and the episodes where we're purely just, you know, when we're purely just reading a writer's work. Mm. So she uses the transcripts to scan through and see whether that's something she'd be interested in. And if it's not, that's fine and great. Sure. But if it is, that's also good because she's not just put off entirely. Wow, that's a cool use. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about this when she told me about it. Yeah. Yeah, and she's not just put off the podcast entirely thinking, oh, it's literary like and I'm not a literary person. She thinks, oh, I'll look through and see if this is relevant to my interests and I can kind of scan it beforehand and then get the different experience of the audible version. Yeah, that's really cool. So I think maybe the last thing to sort of talk about um, in this section is uh, tagging. So we use WordPress to build our website, um, and they have a built-in tagging feature that I have been using, or that I had been using primarily as sort of an SEO, so to increase visibility in Google search engines, which is great, um, but I'm now starting to sort of take a step back and think about it strategically as a way of building um, sort of indexing that also allows a different way of engaging with our data. So now, um, if you go to our website, victorianscribblers.com slash explore, uh, you'll find a, um, a list of sort of categories of scribblers. These categories are not 
supposed to be the be-all end-all of categories, but are supposed to sort of highlight um, the diversity of, of writers that we're covering and give people ways to search. So you can browse by author name, but you can also browse by things like gender, whether or not the writer is uh, disabled uh, or queer. Um, we have a section um, that is currently empty, but won't be next season, or actually this at the end of this season, hooray, uh, for writers of color. Um, eventually you'll be able to search by the country of origin of that scribbler. Um, so if you're interested in writers from Scotland, say, you'll be able to search for that. And then what sort of genres they work primarily in. So fiction, nonfiction, this is sort of wide umbrella, um, drama, poetry, song, or if they are more editor than scribbler per se, or something like that. So we're trying to provide as many avenues for sort of access and engagement as possible. Yeah, and I think in the same way that you were saying before about how this stuff can be really useful for us as a reflective exercise, because, like, for instance, we can look at it now and think, oh, the, con the only countries we've got are England and US, and we really want to diversify that and have writers from other parts of the world, and especially, you know, <laughs> not have that kind of colonialist viewpoint of only studying writers from those countries. Yeah, so it helps us to try and expand what we're covering by looking through that and looking through what we've already got and hopefully it'll also help us to yes. yeah help us to get across that victorian writers are not just white men definitely like that's the first right. hurdle which has always been a mission of this podcast yeah yeah and they're not just white wealthy people either yeah right that's what i was about to say um like that's the first hurdle and then you get across they're not just white white men and then you're like and it's not just white men or white women it's people of or races and backgrounds. And people who are, like, struggling to find money to feed themselves, but but also writing, or, you know, that it's not just, like, some posh uh, people sitting around drinking high tea. High tea is not something you drink, I believe. Uh, in top hats, right? It's not, like, this really stereotypical, <laughs> very fancy, very rich sort of... Um, that's very... That's a very small subset of who was writing in the 19th century yeah and it's a real kind of reductive view and this is the period when writing became a profession and you get people becoming writers because that's how they can earn their bread and mm -hmm. keep a roof over theirs and their children's heads yes so that's sort of our conversation about how we deal with victorian data um i thought maybe we could end our episode today by thinking about what's missing. What data don't we have that we wish we had or that we think, I don't know, they just don't exist or, yeah. Oh God, no, I was going to say, where do I start? Where do I end? There's so much that I wish existed. <laughs> yeah. So I think the biggest th thing for me is um, often you're reading through, especially if you're researching a male writer, um, and the names of the women in his life will either not be included, or they'll only get a first name, or you'll get the full name, but you won't get any info about where they're from, or when they were born, or when they died. Uh, so data about women in general is often wanting, and something that I really wish that I could magically find. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I think it's inherently a thing when you're working on lesser studied people is just, yeah, any data about them. Um, yeah. I mean, I was literally this morning at work, I was telling people about my thesis and telling them about how the way that I came across Francis Helena Trollope, which I don't know if I've talked about on the podcast before, is I was looking through an archives finding aid, which is, I mean, it's great that these this data still exists and that that the manuscripts have been preserved, but I was looking at four letters by Francis Milton Trollope and they just had both Francis Trollope's letters under the same identifier. What? Which for me was odd because I thought, oh, how has she written this letter after she died? But it turned out it wasn't her. <laughs> and then they did elsewhere acknowledge that there were two different women, but it was just this one particular link that I think was broken and they were together interesting and that archive's actually been really useful and helpful so I don't want to call them out in any way and that was also you know <laughs> a really um serendipitous moment for me so I'm actually mm-hmm. thankful that they did that but yeah it's just what data do we wish that was there and then what metadata do we wish was there because yeah it's so often that you get this thing where you know, you see those news articles saying X, Y, Z discovered this thing in the archives, and it's like, well, it was always there. We just needed the metadata to say it was there. Yeah, definitely. And the archivist might have had a vague idea that it was there, but not known that it was interesting or useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I would never want to undercut the work that archivists and special collections librarians. Oh no, absolutely are doing. Not. Yeah, obviously, they do a lot of good work. They have so much data to work with and so many materials to manage that um, it's really always sort of a uh, there's a lot of give and take into like what they can call people's attention to at any given time too even if they do know it's important and they do know it's there just like priorities you know they're yeah 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 one of the people I was having this conversation with this morning was our institutional archivist and she was just saying yeah, it might be there and it might be great, but there's so many... I mean, I don't think this is an uncommon situation where she's the only person looking after our archival materials Mm -hmm. and she is an an expert in all of the different fields that the institution covers. She has no way of knowing what people will be interested in until they contact her. Right. And also has so, so little time and resource to figure that out, which is a whole other rant. But yeah. yeah... I don't want people to think I'm anti-archivist because I love archivists. But, no, of course I not. Wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was about to say I owe them my life, but that's a bit dramatic. But <laughs> I owe them my academic life, possibly. It is true. My life yes. would be so much harder without them. Yes, I I would not have finished my dissertation without the help of many lovely librarians and archivists. Yeah. What else? I mean, so I think. A good example of that is that, you know, of what's missing and sort of how that limits what we can do with data. There's this author who I really want to cover on the podcast, Um, but I cannot find where his papers are, and nobody has thought he is important enough to write a biography of. at all. Oh, no. Although he wrote over 140 novels in his lifetime, one of which sort of like popularized the mystery genre. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so we have this sort of problem of like um, of the canon, right? But also of of uh, whose work has been deemed worth saving. Um, and it, part of that is also on the authors themselves and their families. So did their family think their work was worth saving? Did they want to preserve their work or did they want the future to know about who they are? Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were really private and they didn't want that information out there, right? But often, like, you know, authors will go through at the end of their lives and sort of, like, cull their journals and burn pages or destroy whole journals. And if they don't do it, their family probably does yeah. after they die uh, to preserve the family reputation, right? So um, there's an endless sort of well of missing data. <laughs> I don't want to judge them too harshly because none of my the diaries that I kept as a teenager still exist because I went back and went oh I don't feel like that anymore and therefore I'm going to destroy any evidence that I ever did <laughs> so. uh, Mine are heavily heavily um, censored uh, some of them do still exist I think I did get rid of a few but like most of them have pages missing um, just because I yeah at one point I went back and read them and I was so embarrassed for my past self like I was like yeah. I don't want anyone to ever know this happened <laughs> And the rest of my documents, um, which is a, not documents, but the rest of my kind of biographical documents, if you can call them that, went missing when MySpace went down a couple of years ago. So <laughs> I just aged myself yeah, I, there. Um, I feel very sorry for future archivists who not only have to contend with actual papers, but have to like wrangle with multiple social media uh, accounts um if like that's recoverable at all which possibly i don't know <laughs> old blogs i don't know are they going to like try to track down emails yeah, I, I have not kept track of emails so i don't know how in the world they would <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so the task will be yeah preservation of social media as a whole yeah thing yeah although like i really hope they don't manage it for my myspace page age <laughs> 13 to 17 or something stupid god forbid to be um to go on a complete tangent for a moment i um i watch uh caitlin Doty's ask a mortician youtube series a lot um and she talks about having an advanced directive for like what you want to happen to you and your stuff when you die and having um, information in there about social media. So super morbid, but, like, if you don't want that getting out, uh, it's not as easy for your family to, like, take the social media and burn it, right? Unless you give them the keys to those things in the case of your death. So <laughs> it's related, but also very morbid. <laughs> Something to be thinking about, I guess. Yeah. No, it makes, a, it makes so much sense because I somehow... Sorry, this is, again, a complete tangent. But until it went down wholesale, I couldn't get my stuff, my MySpace page, taken down because I'd somehow, my email address was a .co.uk and I'd somehow signed up with .com and I couldn't delete it because I couldn't recover the password and it was the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. Even, like... Even tech people, of which I am ostensibly one, are not great at this. Like, we 
um, technology has improved too rapidly and infiltrated our lives too much in like really good ways, but really messy ways often that we don't have a really great system, which actually makes us more like the Victorians than we realize. Because if you think about it, they're the first people who have sort of this mass communication, mass information situation. And what do you know? They, like, get very fond of archives very quickly, right? Because they're like, we're drowning in information. We have to be able to do something to tame it. Um, it didn't work. I think it's always maybe a losing yeah. battle, but yeah. Yeah, so that is our informal conversation about uh, Victorian scribblers and its engagements with data. We hope to bring you some live content from uh, the 2019 NAVSA Data Caucus shortly. Yeah, and if you are a new listener, as someone who we've met at the caucus and is interested in the podcast, all of the materials are available at victoriascribblers.com, not including the timeline, which is still a work in progress, which is at victoriascribblers.github.com. Yes. But all of the episodes are on there as well. You can, uh, if you have an idea for an episode or would like to pitch coming on as a, uh, as a guest, you can contact us at victorianscribblers at outlook.com. Yes. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. Oh, say, let us fly, dear. Where, kid? To the sky, dear. Oh, you flying machine. Jump. In Miss Josephine. Hip ahoy! Oh, joy, what a feeling. Wheels go through the ceiling, ho, high. Hoopla, we fly to the sky so high. From Josephine in my flying machine, going up, she goes, up, she goes. Balance yourself like a bird on a beam in the air. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives.